You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Now, a number of people have written to me to let me know they missed the question of the day that I used to do. Now, I'm not going to promise I'm going to do one in every episode, but I do have one for you today, and it's a very simple question. Really, it's just a question of how observant are you? Which president is on the U.S. dime? Again, which president of the United States is on the dime? And as in the past, I'll let you know the answer to that question at the end of the podcast. As many of you know, I've been a high school teacher for the past 25 years. It's really hard to believe time has just flown by. And every student deals with these teenage years differently. But one thing that almost every student has in common is that need to be noticed in some way. You know, to stand out in the crowd. And some do this by getting good grades, some being good athletes, and others, I hate to say it, by being incredibly immature. Take birthdays, for example. I can't begin to tell you the number of students will say something like, only 37 days until my birthday. And in case I may forget, they'll remind me every few days, or they may write it on my calendar. Some days I'll walk in and it's on the board, but they'll keep reminding me. Of course, when the actual date of their birthday finally rolls around, they take the day off, so I can't wish them a happy birthday anyway. Now, I'm the complete opposite. I was a very shy kid, and I've always tried to hide on my birthday. I've just never liked being the center of attention. But for the purpose of this podcast, I do need to let you know that I recently had a birthday on August 4th. And you may be surprised to hear this. There were also other people born on this day. Hard to believe, isn't it? That includes musician Louis Armstrong, baseball's Roger Clemens, and actor Richard Belzer. But there's one person whose fame far exceeds that of any other celebrity that was born on this day. I happen to have the same birthday as President Barack Obama. Maybe you've heard of the guy. And because we share this special day, I think I should be invited to the White House each year so we can celebrate our birthdays together. You know, chat a bit over a nice meal and then enjoy the obligatory piece of cake. A large piece of chocolate cake, that's my preference. I know it sounds a bit far-fetched, but something like this really did happen in January of 1941. A 13-year-old girl from Gary, West Virginia named Anna Sklepovich wrote a letter to the late President Franklin Roosevelt to let him know that they were both born on January 30th. Of course, FDR was a wee bit older, just a bit. He was about to turn 59 years of age. The President's private secretary sent Anna a reply on his behalf. It said, quote, 
The president thanks you for your birthday greeting and wishes you also many happy returns of the day. Sincerely, Margaret Lahand. Below the typewritten message was a handwritten postscript. It said he would like to have you come to the White House and meet the president. Wow, isn't that incredible? Very generous on his part. So the next thing you know, members of the local press are snapping photos as Anna is boarding a train to make the nearly 400-mile or 650-kilometer trip to Washington, D.C. Upon her arrival on January 28th, Anna wasted no time and headed right over to the White House. It was there that she was informed by members of the Secret Service that while the letter of thanks from Ms. Lahan was indeed genuine, the postscript to meet the president was not. It was a fake. Instead of meeting FDR, she was whisked away to spend the night at the police receiving home, which was basically a city-run home for the abused and orphaned children. Attendants at the home contacted Anna's mom, who confirmed that she had indeed given her permission to travel to D.C. alone to meet the president. Can you imagine sending your kid alone to Washington, D.C. today? They told Mrs. Klepovich that they'd be sending Anna right back home. Talk about a big, big letdown. But it didn't take long until the national press took note of the story. Supposedly, the president had read about Anna's situation in the next morning's Washington Post and decided to turn the tables on whomever the prankster was that caused this mess. He instructed the White House press secretary, that was Stephen Early, to make the arrangements to bring Anna to the White House. Early, in turn, then contacted George Allen, who was a former district commissioner, and he was in charge of the president's birthday ball celebration. Allen moved quickly and got Anna out of the police receiving home, and instead he put her up in a luxurious room at the famous Mayflower Hotel. For supervision, a police matron named Rose Myrtle Richardson was assigned to be her chaperone, and then next up was a meeting at 11.40 a.m. with the man himself, the President of the United States. Now, the meeting only lasted for five minutes, but it was one that Anna would remember fondly for the rest of her life. And what did they discuss? World peace. You see, Anna had a brilliant solution to bring a quick halt to the world war that was raging around the globe, and FDR was all ears. I know what you're thinking. That never happened. Yeah, it never happened. They actually discussed fishing. FDR showed Anna his collection of trophies and stuffed fish that he collected while deep-sea fishing. He said, quote, But I'll bet none of these are as big as the fish in West Virginia. They exchanged birthday greetings, and she was on her way. Ms. Richardson and Mr. Allen then took Anna on a sightseeing tour of Washington, D.C. This included a trip out to George Washington's home at Mount Vernon. This was then followed by a stop at a department store to pick up a gift to bring home to her mom. And I know this is something you really, really want. It's something I want. A small replica of the U.S. Capitol. The day also included an appearance with Red Skelton on WJSV Radio. The press quickly coined her Cinderella Girl, and the next day, January 30th, that's her birthday and the president's birthday, would be a day like a scene lifted from a fairy tale. Anna, donning a new evening gown and silver slippers, was escorted from one presidential ball to the next. Not only did she get to meet the celebrities of the day, 
but she was treated like one herself. Onlookers asked her for her autograph, and one person even snatched her handkerchief as a souvenir. At the Mayflower, the master of ceremonies, that's Arch MacDonald, introduced her as, quote, the most courageous girl of the year. The crowd erupted in applause as Anna stood to make a short speech. She said that I am, quote, proud and happy to be born on the same day as our great president. She was then whisked off to another celebration at the Shoreham before ending up at Wardman Park Hotel to meet, get this, Eleanor Roosevelt. Newsmen and photographers gathered around Mrs. Roosevelt as she prepared to cut the oversized birthday cake. Lana Turner, Deanna Durbin, and Anna were asked to move in closer so they could all be part of the cake-cutting image. The next day, the press reported that Lana Turner was not happy with Anna stealing the limelight, so she supposedly told Anna to, quote, move over, please, before jabbing her to get her out of the way. In turn, Anna told the press, quote, she poked me in the ribs and tried to get me to move out of the way. She also added that Lana, quote, isn't so pretty. She's artificial looking. Ouch. Anyway, Mrs. Roosevelt played politician and tried to smooth things over in her newspaper column a couple of weeks later. Quote, I'm quite sure that no one tried to get anyone else out of the picture because what we were trying to do was to get everyone into the picture and not have them hidden by the most gorgeous and monumental cake I have ever seen, which threatened to hide everyone except me. And before the evening was over, Anna was sure to get autographs from all the stars that she had met. The one big regret she had was not getting Mrs. Roosevelt to do the same. By midnight, Anna was back in her room at the Mayflower, reflecting back on the past two days of fun and excitement. And the next morning, she hopped aboard an Eastern Airlines plane to head to New York City. She was scheduled to appear on Gabriel Heater's We the People radio program. And then, after a wonderful weekend in the Big Apple, Anna hopped the train to go back home to Gary. But a homecoming party that her family had arranged for her on Friday, February 7th, had to be postponed. Why? Because just as the party was beginning, the authorities shut it down. And that was because there was a scarlet fever quarantine in effect in Gary. It was lifted a few days later. But what I find interesting is that the schools in Gary had been closed for several weeks, and there was a quarantine in effect. Yet somehow, Anna was able to board that train and go see the president. Anna was presented with several offers for personal appearances and for performing on the stage, but she ultimately decided that staying in high school was her best bet. She eventually married, became Mrs. Howard Farley, and moved to New York City in the mid-1960s. And no one ever admitted to being the one that pulled this hoax on Anna, but she almost immediately concluded that was her 18-year-old brother, Steve. He never confirmed nor denied the allegation, but Gary West Virginia Police Sergeant Vilcek was fairly certain that it was a prank conceived by Steve. He said that with the help of seven or eight other boys, they were able to raise enough money to purchase a round-trip ticket to Washington, D.C., He noted that when Anna received the presidential letter, the envelope had already been open, the postscript invitation added, and of course the ticket inserted. 
During a 1972 interview with Anna's sister, Brenda, she stated, quote, Anna could have killed her brother when she found out what he did. But to this day, Stevie has never admitted that he put the note on the bottom of the president's letter. So President Obama, you, me, you know, same birthdays. Where is my invitation? I'm waiting. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Today, many thousands of people are thankful to their physicians or dentists for first having introduced them to that remarkable preparation called anison, which brings such incredibly fast and effective relief from the pains of headaches, neuritis, or neuralgia. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, it contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients. So ask for easy-to-take anison tablets at your drug counter Next time you suffer pains from headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. For most effective relief, Uzone is directed. I'll repeat the name for you. Anacin. A-N-A-C-I-N. That commercial for Anacin is from the September 22nd, 1949 episode of Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons. That show was broadcast on the CBS network at the time. This particular episode is titled The Yellow Talon Murder Case. Back in 1915, a Minneapolis pharmacist named William M. Knight mixed together four drugs that were widely used at the turn of the 20th century. Those were caffeine, aspirin, quinine sulfate, and the fever-reducing acetanilide. He named it anacin, that's A-N-A-C-I-N, but that was quickly modified to its current spelling of one word or as one word. Knight didn't hold on to his Anison Chemical Company very long. He sold it in 1919 and it changed hand multiple times after that. When this commercial was broadcast in 1949, it was owned by American Home Products, which eventually changed its name to Wyeth. Today, there are multiple formulations of Anison, which are all manufactured by Insight Pharmaceuticals. In other news, on Sunday, April 1st of 1951, Officer Carl Ham pulled over a car at the corner of North Holton and East Vine Streets in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Ham asked the driver for his license, which identified him as Elmer Urban. But the officer knew immediately that he was lying. He was certain that the driver was not Elmer Urban, but instead his identical twin, Alvin. Now, how could he be so certain? It turns out someone had tipped off the police and mentioned that the only way to tell the two apart was that Alvin had a dark birthmark on the back of his neck. 
So as soon as the officer spotted the birthmark, he placed Alvin under arrest. Apparently, the two 24-year-old brothers had been playing this game of deceit with the police for years. Alvin had been arrested for drunk driving in both 1948 and 1949, and therefore his license was taken away. His brother Elmer had served two 60-day sentences concurrently for reckless driving. The state reissued Elmer's license a few months before this incident occurred, and that was the one that Alvin had been driving when he was arrested. In our next story, you could say that 8-year-old Edith Diane Brown was the luckiest girl on earth way back in October of 1956. That's when her family learned that she'd be inheriting an estimated $1.8 million. That's about $15.5 million today if you adjust it for inflation. What's so unusual about this story is that she inherited the money from Mrs. Edith Marshall, who wasn't a blood relative. The money was earned by her late husband, Courtney Marshall, who had been a bigwig executive at an oil refinery. It seems when Edith Marshall arrived in Beaumont, Texas 44 years earlier, she was hired by R.L. Brown to work in his insurance firm. Mrs. Marshall was so appreciative of what Mr. Brown had done for her all those years ago that she left the bulk of her estate to, quote, the favorite granddaughter of the family. The only catch was that little Edith Brown had to wait until she was 25 to get the first one quarter of the trust that had been set up in her name. The next one third at age 33, and the remainder would come at age 37. And the last tidbit I have for you today is from Sunday, August 30th of 1959. That's when four men decided to crack the safe at the Bellevue Cooperative Bank in the West Roxbury neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. 33-year-old John J. Sturris was chosen to be the lookout while the other three men worked on the safe inside the bank. Then Sturris suddenly saw a police cruiser and he panicked. Perched in a tree, he fell to the ground and then he ran to his car to signal the others with his headlights. Stupid move. The officers really had no clue until this point that a robbery was occurring, but now it was perfectly clear that something sinister was going on. Sturris was arrested on the spot and, of course, he stooled on his friends who were able to get away. Police caught two of the men in Franklin Park, quote, and you're going to love this, quote, after an unsuccessful attempt to pose as shrubbery. I don't even know how you'd do that. The men had already removed one door from the safe and were just about to set off explosives to remove a second door when the police arrived. Ironically, there was nothing in the safe that they were trying to open. Absolutely nothing. They were wasting their time. Now, if only they had opted to open the second safe in the bank. That one contained $3,000 in cash. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked which president is on the front of a dime. Did you know without looking in your pocket? Today's podcast should have been a big, big hint. Since 1946, it has been FDR. Now, why the dime? Well, it's very simple. You know, all those presidential birthday bashes that Anna went to in today's story weren't because Roosevelt was an egomaniac. Well, maybe it was. I don't know for sure. But anyway, in fact, he didn't go to any of the 8,261 birthday bashes that were held that year in his honor. Yet millions of people across the country celebrated the day for one good reason— that was to raise money to help fight infantile paralysis.
Having contracted what was then thought to be polio in August of 1921, FDR helped establish the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis in 1938. Eddie Cantor asked listeners of his radio show to help the cause by simply mailing a dime to the White House. He called this, quote, the March of Dimes, and that was a play on the March of Times radio and film newsreels that were popular at the time. The name has stuck ever since, and the fundraising campaign was repeated each year during the week preceding Roosevelt's birthday. When FDR passed away, it only made sense to place his portrait on the coin that was most associated with him. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I apologize if my voice sounds strained. Since around February, I started noticing it was getting more and more painful to project my voice while teaching. That's a really important part of the job. Anyway, by the time finals came around, I could barely speak, and I have to be honest, the pain was awful. Doctor's diagnosis extremely dry throat due to conditioned air in my classroom, house, car, basically all through the modern world except for going outside. I've been trying to rest my voice all summer, but it's still healing and I can tell that it's somewhat weak. I've had this problem since my early 20s, but this year was by far the worst ever. I am doing much better, uh, but if it isn't fully healed by the next podcast, I may ask someone else to record it for me, so I'm just warning you that in advance. As always, I thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.